Contra is Contra is nuanced. Contra, Contra is, is transgressive. Good trouble. Contra, Contra is, is collaborative. Contra is a podcast. Is a space for thinking about design critically. Contra is subversive. Contra is texture. You are listening to Solidarity Chats, a special section of the Contra podcast on disability, design justice, and the life world. These episodes, recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, focus on disability, eugenics, and mutual aid. We're hoping to capture some of the conversations that disabled people and our allies are having about issues such as healthcare infrastructure, medical triage, eugenics, and technology as it is unevenly distributed across the population. These episodes are also going to come out at a different rate than the regular Contra episodes. So please make sure to subscribe on Google, Apple, or Stitcher so that you don't miss any. This is Amy Hamrai. I'm excited to be here with Dasam Na, who is a disabled educator and community organizer at Senior and Disability Action, also an immigrant and a poet. And currently they're organizing with the Disability Justice Culture Club in support of mutual aid resource coordination and planning an online speaker series to support disabled Black and Indigenous people of color artists who have lost work due to the virus. Welcome. Hi. Hi, how Hi. are you? I'm doing okay, how are you? Yeah, hanging in there, <laughs> surviving. Yeah, yeah. Same. yeah, yeah. yeah. Same. Um, well, I'm very excited to talk to you today about, um, you know, your analysis and thoughts about what's happening right now uh, in the coronavirus pandemic. Um, so maybe just to start, what's your take on this pandemic and ableism and um, how that's showing up in this time? Right. So um, I feel like the biggest thing that I'm noticing, or there are two things that I'm noticing, is that um, the first thing is more of an erasure of disabled people from uh, the mainstream narrative of, um, I guess, instead of naming disabled people, we're kind of referred to as vulnerable populations alongside with, let's say, like older people or uh, people sometimes uh, Sometimes in the news, uh, they say, you know, people with underlying health conditions, but the word disabled is really used very rarely. Um, and even reflecting on San Francisco specific um, kind of measures that are being taken by local businesses um, and organizations such as uh, supermarkets and local, you know, corner stores and stuff like that. Um, they if they would post online that they have um, special times for people to drop in in the morning when um, the crowd it's supposedly less crowded again disabled people are really rarely named um, it's mostly for our senior population for our older people and of course working at senior and disability action i am really happy to see that there are 
measures that are being taken by you know local small businesses and mom and pop stores but at the same time it really breaks my heart to see that disabled people are again um, not being centered in this pandemic that is really impacting our community. And the second thing that I was thinking about is how even when disabled people are named, it seems that it's a kind of, as it normally becomes, it's a, it becomes a really separate category as if it exists outside of, you know, all the different intersections that disabled people exist in. And I'm specifically talking about, you know, racism um, and imperialism in a way, um, because thinking about how many people in prisons and jails and detention centers right now uh, due to previous or ongoing trauma in those centers, right, um, are disabled or becoming disabled also partially because of this virus as well. It's just, I feel like the, the lack of this uh, intersectional approach to, you know, figuring out a way, like how do we actually protect ourselves um, just leads to leaving black and brown indigenous disabled people to basically die. Yeah, absolutely. I am just continually um, shocked, although maybe I shouldn't be, by the decentering of disabled people right. and disabled people's experience mm -hmm. and knowledge at this moment of global disablement and of global inaccessibility and also of the lack of intersectional analysis as you pointed out that um, the places where people are the are made the most vulnerable and unable to social distance are places of institutionalization incarceration detention um, and those perspectives um, and even like in mutual aid kinds of situations like it's often people organizing aid in this time with the people who live around them and not the people who live far away and are um, being cut off and denied visitation and stuff like that. So I'm so glad that you said that just to put it at the forefront that um, when folks are doing analysis of this pandemic, they need to understand that what is happening is like the mass death of disabled people of color. Right, exactly. And thinking of statistics that have been, you know, or people's lives that have become statistics more accurately, that have become really well known, I think, in the past few days of, you know, 70% of Chicago deaths have been, you know, Black people. And also a similar percentage of people who have died in New Orleans have also been Black people. Just thinking about those things, and I also wonder, like, how many people from that from that statistic have been disabled you know in their lives and um how does that contribute to a heightened mortal mortality rate too um and just people are not just black and brown people are not just disabled we hold multiple identities and and this pandemic should not erase that yeah and i fear that it kind of does yeah absolutely i keep hearing from people about how the virus is killing people indiscriminately. And it's like, actually all of the structural inequalities in our healthcare system and our cities, um, all of these things are um, shaping who, who lives and who dies in this moment if they do catch the mm -hmm. virus. Um, right. So maybe like turning to a more hopeful note, <laughs> 
what are some forms of mutual aid and solidarity that you're taking part in right now? So right now, as you <laughs> said earlier, I am um, doing resource coordination and acting as a print person for a few um, disabled BIPOC, um, Kitty BIPOC, um, sorry, disabled queer trans Black Indigenous people of color um, who have uh, submitted requests for mutual aid in the Bay Area that was organized by DJCC um, and Disability Justice Culture Club, sorry. Um, and I think just seeing in the beginning before we started seeing that this is not going to be a one month or two months long you know, a change of life, let's say, like, you know, um, the temporal, like a short-term change that we have to endure and then push through. Um, I was feeling really hopeful seeing all the mutual aid um, stuff pop popping up, especially in the Bay Area, seeing how our community is uh, stepping forward again um, and bringing so much kindness and empathy and generosity and, it actually helping people, you know, because um, sometimes those emotions can um, can be just as limiting when it when it you know when it disguises itself in charity. Um, but yeah, so I am uh, currently organizing with Disability Justice Culture Club in the Bay Area as a resource coordinator and a point person for a few queer trans uh, Black Indigenous people of color. Uh, who are disabled, who have submitted requests uh, for mutual aid. And I am conflicted when it comes to my emotions about it. I think we all, as we all are, it's not simply black and white. It's, there are so many emotions attached to that. I am proud of us seeing our disabled community stepping up like this after Power to Live. And it just feels that there are so many catastrophes that are hitting us over and over again. But at the same time, I'm also feeling really sad that this is not a short-term thing, that this is going to be, that we could have to continue relying on each other. And part of that also brings me hope in a way, because finally we are understanding, like more people are understanding what what it actually means to be inter interdependent and to actually depend on one another to survive through this thing. It's a little bit less, same with social distancing, right? It's not something that one person can do. We have to rely on each other to do that. And, or physical distancing as someone, some people say, just this catastrophe bringing in that, um, again and again, showing how the wisdom of the disabled community is the thing that really enables us shape the reality as we go on but at the same time it is also very i see so much so much love and care also within the mutual aid network and not only between let's say point people as we call uh, people who are who are directly uh, dealing with requesters um, but also within the group of volunteers, point people, resource coordinators, core people, and all of those different, different categories, we really love and care about each other's well-being. And I see that at the same time, this is an exhausting thing to do. And this is something that 
I fear we won't be able to continue if, if everything just goes back to normal, right? Everything just go, goes back to people being busy again. Like that's something that I'm constantly thinking about. What would happen if we had the same catastrophe, people were dying and, but social distancing and physical distancing was not an issue, right? Would people, would we have the same amount of volunteers? Would we have the same amount of people who are able to provide mutual aid? And maybe right now is not the time to think about the really sad what if scenarios, but it also is something that's creeping up in my mind constantly. But aside from mutual aid, um, where we provide mostly, I guess, physical, um, we, we provide, access to, um, I guess, ba uh, meeting basic needs that people have. Um, I think another part of my work that I see is also creating online and digital spaces where people can gather together and just focusing more of, on the mental health aspect of aid. I think it's really important um, that is, this, this aspect is not really addressed that I see in, um, and at least from what I can see from other people's like social media uh, uh, posts and stuff like that, um, a lot of emphasis goes into, you know, delivering groceries and, you know, getting medication, but isolation has a huge like, destructive impact, especially so on disabled communities, right? And I'm thinking of also isolation that people in prisons and jails are experiencing day to day right now. And, you know, like what are the ways that we can gather together again? What are the ways that we can continue and ex uh, continue being part of, but also expanding our community and expanding our reach and expanding, expanding the way that we support, support each other. So that being said, um, I see the online speaker series uh, that we call Justice Brunch um, as one of the ways that we can do that. Um, that is helping us expand our reach beyond just Bay Area disabled folks, right? Or uh, we're serving not only disabled folks, but uh, Black Indigenous people of color and elders. And um, so reaching beyond our main reach here. Uh, main populations here. And I think having the cultural, um, having disabled BIPOC for cultural workers provide their work and also being able to support them through that as well uh, by paying them, of course, but also like, broadening their audiences as well in a way um, is something that I see as very necessary in this moment and something that we shouldn't forget about. So it seems like so much of what you're talking about, like at its core is the question of what kinds of relationships do we want to have with each other and what kinds of relationships of care. Um, so the question that, you know, disabled people, we ask this question all the time because we are often used to organizing care um, for ourselves and with our comrades and our friends and family. Um, and in this moment, and this is related also to the um, 
conversation we had yes. earlier about how disability is getting decentered. Like in this moment, um, people are asking for relationships and care in different ways. And there, some people are like building them for the first time ever, like really building the kinds of like um, relationships that have life and death sort of stakes, you know? Um, and in all of these different examples that you've given us, like there's a sort of, there's like a theory that informs what a good relationship is and isn't. And, and I've, I'm so interested and curious in the ways that disability justice is informing how we think about mutual aid and solidarity. Um, I also talked uh, to Jay Salazar this morning um, and we talked about like, you know, even just the forms that D DJCC uses for intake are so informed by disability justice concepts and theories and stuff. So, um, you know, what do you think about that? Like what, what are the relationships that we're trying to build and the forms of care that we're trying to make last going forward and not just be tied to this kind of crisis centered moment? I guess I'm having a difficulty answering that question because I do not see another way of doing things outside of a disability justice perspective. So I worry whether or not these relationships would last. That is something that's constantly on my mind. As a point person, I check in with uh, the volunteer I assign to the requester, uh, both with the volunteer and the requester to make sure that their relationship is continuing to build and that they can create a more of a reliable, um, one-to-one -one kind of um, process of getting the requester's needs met. But I think this is the moment when we have to, this is not a, this is a process, you know? Uh, so I feel like everything that we're doing right now, we have to continue making sure that these relationships will actually last. And just because we connect a volunteer with a requester, for example, or just because we are connecting as uh, point people or resource coordinators um, with our requesters, it, it's not enough. And it's something, I think that is what is part of, that is what is really the core of disability justice is that nothing is just done and done. And we have to keep centering our disabled BIPOC. We have to keep centering our uh, queer trans disabled people and making sure that none of us is being forgotten. And I think maybe that is kind of answering your question because this crisis is not the end. It's just the beginning for us to actually have more time to focus on one another and check in on one another and us actually realizing that time is also a resource. And using that to to really understand what resource redistribution means. Yeah, I love that. Um, this we have an abundance of time right now, and everything that that enables us to do, depending on how we spend it. Right. Yeah. Um, are there any other lessons from DJCC in this moment that you want to share with us? Yes. Um, so the biggest thing is, I think people are slowly realizing how 
disability justice is not a big concept, but it's something that you do every day, small things. I really love, I think Stacy Park, Stacy Park Melbourne posted this recently on Facebook saying how washing DJC uh, disability justice can look like washing your hands for 40 seconds um, before you go into anyone's house or if you are even if you're alone at home you know and I just feel that that is the core of disability justice is that we just have to realize that every little step that we do is is shaping our reality shaping other people's realities and everyone is depending on one another and my existence is not just solitary. I exist in a community and I rely on other people who are also a mutual aid network, for example, to do their own part so I can do my part, right? And I think that is something that really came up um, during this crisis of how, how much more connected we are, even in this supposed isolation time, and how how there is much more responsibility on our shoulders than we want to believe or that we that we are used to believe yeah i think that's what i'm gonna say yeah 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 beautiful um such an important lesson about interdependence and I wish that um, the structures that are set up to take care of us better understood that. Um, so much of the mutual aid work that we do is because the state doesn't provide that same aid, yeah. right? Um, or it doesn't do the things that are necessary to make sure that um, the people who are the most at risk survive. And um, yeah, this, this piece about building relationships and recognizing our independence and also how much we rely on each other just seems, it seems like it's on everyone's mind right now in a mm -hmm. new way. And I feel that it is also showing us how systems that are put in place are not enough and they're not, of course, they're not designed to care for us, right? But it's not, it's, they're not able to substitute care. They can sustain us maybe if they were built properly, but I think, again, going back to having time as a resource, I think being able to kind of divorce ourselves a little bit from day-to-day -day suffocating capitalism that is really omnipresent in the in the Bay Area, especially, I would say, really shows us how much care we need and how much care we can provide outside of the systems. And that is how, that is what, that is something that has been, like the systems that are in place have been stopping us from doing that. And now when we see them crumbling, we see the systems crumbling, we see the institutions that were built against us being shaken, we finally have an opportunity to, to be there for one another. And I hope that is what continues. Yeah, me too. If you could write the, the ideal future for us in terms of solidarity and mutual aid and disability justice, 
what would that be like that's a difficult question because i think of the future as octavia butler describes it in her parable series of um god has changed and we need to shape change and again i do not see future as a final destination but as a process and i think uh going back to disability justice the future that the ideal future that we see is somewhere where everyone is taking part in shaping the future and we're not being relegated to the sides while everything is being changed for us and yeah that's that's the future that i'm hoping for yeah beautiful well thank you so much Jasmine. it was really awesome to talk to you and um what are some ways for people who are listening to the podcast or reading the transcript to support the work that you're doing? Donate to DJCC. And I want to be very careful about saying check in on uh, disabled people because um, check in on your disabled friends because sometimes people just check in. Instead of just checking in, try to see what you can do with this extra time to to show that you care not just send a message and if you have resources give them away or redistribute them yes that is the lesson of this moment for sure great well thank you dasan it was a pleasure having you on the podcast thank you it was such a pleasure you've been listening to contra a podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. Contra is a production of the Critical Design Lab. Learn more about our projects at mapping-access.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. The Contra podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial share-alike international 3.0 license. That means you can remix, repost, or recycle any of the content as long as you cite the original source, aren't making money, you don't change the credits, and you share it under the same license.